Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. The big pharma companies saved $7 billion last year from Trump's tax law, the uh, GOP tax scam. And Pfizer has uh, announced that they're raising prices on 41 of their prescription drugs. Johnson & Johnson raised prices on two dozen prescription drugs. Merck said it's raising prices on five of its prescription drugs. Trump said... I actually called the heads of Pfizer and Novartis and others. I said, you can't do that. You can't raise your prices. You know what they did? They brought them down. They didn't raise them. No, sorry. They lied to you or you lied to us. So we've got that and we've got this weird notion that shareholders should be the only ones who get any benefit from a corporation. Prior to the 1970s, it was understood that corporations had multiple stakeholders, basically. You had the community in which the corporation existed. You had the employees. It used to be bad news when corporations laid off people. It used to be considered a bad sign. Their stock would go down. Now, now it goes up. You had the employees. You had the customers. You had the institution of the corporation itself. You had the, the people who work within the corporation. And, of course, you had the shareholders. These were all the stakeholders in a corporation. And then in the late 70s, Milton Friedman wrote this piece saying, Oh, no, the shareholders actually own the company, so everything should be about them. In 93, actually, this kind of essentially became part of our tax law. Very strange stuff. We've reached this point where it's all about making shareholders richer. On the line with us is Morris Pearls. He's the chairman of the Patriotic Millionaires. He's a former managing director of BlackRock, Inc. PatrioticMillionaires.org is the website. Morris's Twitter handle is Morris underscore Pearl, just like mine is Tom underscore Hartman. Morris, welcome back to the program. First of all, what is the state of taxation in the United States for people at your level of wealth and or income versus the average working person in America? Well, basically, I, people like me, investors who don't actually work, but earn income from investments, pay much lower taxes than people actually work for a living. And I honestly have no idea why. You know, one of the things, one of the uh, memes that I keep seeing on on television are TV commentators asking people, are you a capitalist? And, you know, somebody asked me if I'm a capitalist outside of a little bit of retirement income that 
I would hope it is going to earn money. It actually lost money last year. But outside of that, no, I don't make my living from capital. I make my living working. I write books. I do a radio show. I have an income stream. And I have my entire life. I've started and sold off five different businesses. But I never did that based on capital. It's always been on elbow grease. How is it that the term capitalist has come to mean somebody who believes in free enterprise as opposed to somebody who lives off their capital? Well, I think all of us believe in free enterprise. You've been involved in free enterprise, too. Yes, absolutely. And our businesses are capitalist. Capitalist basically means that people privately own businesses instead of the government owning all businesses. So I think most Americans subscribe to capitalism. In fact, the whole world does now, basically. There aren't really any societies that don't. But I think that capitalists have to get away from this weird idea you, you were just talking about, that only the owners count, because that's really not even in their own long-term best interests. That started, you know, when Carl Icahn realized the management of TWA was kind of being too greedy, and then he could run the company a little bit better by selling off all the pieces of it for more than it cost him to buy it. But that doesn't work for most companies. You can't have companies and just sell them to try to make money for the shareholders and close down capitalism, because that's not even the long-term best interest of the capitalists. If you actually want to run a business, you want to keep it going for the future. You need owners, you need employees, you need customers, you need people who can buy stuff. You don't want a society of just a few rich people and lots of poor people. That doesn't work for any of us. How do we pull back from these fairly radical changes that were made in policy in the 80s and Reagan deciding, essentially, he was no longer going to enforce the antitrust laws and things. And then the rise of the mergers and acquisition business in the 80s. And then, and then of course, uh, this being written into tax law in 1993. I think we as a society have to get people to, to do two things. One is to decide that we don't want the rich to get richer and everyone else to get poorer. And the other is to look at both that and everything else in a longer-term perspective. It's not all about how much money you'll make in the next three months. You know, people say, oh, what about Kansas? Well, the people in Kansas aren't stupid. They're voting for what they think is in their long-term best interests, not for how much, not for who will make more money in the next three months. And so do I. I don't vote based on which candidate will have a policy to make me richer this year. And neither do most people. I think we have to make corporate America understand that, too, that it's not just about this quarter. It's about the long term. Isn't that structural, though? Is, I mean, isn't that a matter of changing the incentives? Elizabeth Warren has this Affordable Capitalism Act, and she's suggesting that 40% of board of directors of a company should be made up of workers, essentially. In Germany, every corporation that has more than 1,000 employees, they're required by the German constitution that their, their board of directors be made up of 50% workers from that company. And acknowledging that the community is one of the stakeholders in a corporation, and the, and the corporation has to consider its impact on a community when it makes corporate decisions. The workers are, you know, all these, these different stakeholders. Isn't this a, really a matter of changing the incentive structure? I think we need to, but I also think we need rules and regulations. Well, that's you how you do it, expect, right? You can't expect people to do it voluntarily, because if one company decides, oh, I'm going to think long term, and all the rest don't, well, somebody can go and buy that company because, 
over the very short term, over a few months, that's not going to make them more money. Right. It has to be something like the same reason we need rules that you can't, you know, walk on the grass. If one person walks on the grass, well, that's fine. But if we all do, it'll be destroyed. So we have to have some rules that say, well, none of us will walk on the, on the grass between the paths and we'll all have a nice garden. So, so what so are the rules, rules that you would propose to reclaim functional capitalism? I think we, we need some kind of rules that are not to avoid the short-termism, to avoid the idea that you can buy a corporation, and that if you realize that the things that it owns, the airplanes or the factories or whatever, are worth a tiny bit more than the price of it on one day, you can just buy it and sell all those things and make back your money. That's, that's not what we should be encouraging, but somehow we are. And that's the problem with American society is that we're very short term and we have a tax code that makes the rich people have lower tax rates than working people and so encourages that kind of behavior. How do you respond to people who, who would say that by arguing in favor of raising taxes on rich people or at least equalizing their taxes with the taxes of working people that you know you're you're arguing that it's a zero sum game that that there's no more extra money that can be made that you know somebody getting it's richer a, means somebody else is getting poorer it's not a zero sum game because if we all do better we'll all do better talk to the guy who you know runs your local bar He's a lot more concerned about how much beer money all the customers have on Friday night than about how much salary the one guy pouring the beer makes. Right. So if if if, his, if everybody gets higher wages, well, then he'll do better, too. Fuck the people in Seattle where they raise the minimum wage. They didn't have trouble because they were paying their workers too much. They had trouble leasing more space to expand their restaurants and bars because so many people, more people want to eat out. They're suddenly making more money. So I think it's it's far more than a zero-sum game. It's a huge-sum game. If we can get more money in the hands of working people who actually spend it, as opposed to investors who just look at our computer screens and see our portfolios get more valuable, that's what's going to help the businesses expand. Yeah, extraordinary stuff. Morris Pearl, chairman of Patriotic Millionaires. PatrioticMillionaires.org is their website. Former managing director of BlackRock. Uh, Morris, thank you so much for being with us today. Mr. Pearl. Thank you. Great. It's great talking with you. It's always great talking with you. Morris underscore Pearl, by the way, is his Twitter handle. If you want to say hi and thank you. Great guy. And extraordinary stuff. I mean, for a rich person to come out and say, yeah, raise my taxes, please. This is the Tom Hartman Program. That is actually the essence of true patriotism. Raise my taxes because it's better for my country. Let's invite in Charles Sauer, libertarian economist and president of the Market Institute. His new book, Profit Motive, What Drives the Things We Do. Marketinstitute.org is the website. At Charles Sauer, S-A-U-E-R is his Twitter handle. Charles, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me on. Thanks for joining us. We were just talking to Morris Pearl, the founder and chairman of the Patriotic Millionaires. And although I th he may be a billionaire, I'm not sure. But uh, in any case, former direct managing director at BlackRock. And he's saying, you know, raise my taxes. I'm a rich guy. You need to raise my taxes. It'll be a good thing for everybody if you raise my taxes. Uh, and and uh, what say you, Charles? 
Well, I, I say I think that there's a uh, line on there where he can donate as much money as he wants. So he can voluntarily do that. I'm sure he's he already doing that. to uh, spend uh, extra money uh, with, through the federal government. So you think it is, it, it is a, a normal, good, and healthy thing that somebody like Morris Pearl pays an income tax rate of 20, 25% maximum, and somebody like, you know, Sean or me or Nate, you know, people who are working for a living can pay up to as much as 36% income tax. You like that? Yeah, well, I think the last time we talked about this, we talked about some of the uh, ways that um, taxes were actually handled in the past, and you cited with him in saying that 25% for rich people made sense because you accepted the fact that rich people could don't could uh, deduct the fact that they were um, taking their wife out for lunch while they were on a business trip, or that they were, um, you know, deducting. Uh, full meals and expenses and golf while they were out on those trips. And I don't think that that's the case. I think that we should have a um, a higher burden for deductions like that. But I would like to lower the overall rate. If we look at the historical... Charles, you're, of- you're, A, you're misquoting me. Why are we debating deductions? It's not deductions that are the lower tax rate. Morris Pearl makes his money through capital gains. He makes his money by investing. He's a capitalist. And capitalists pay a capital gains tax rate, which is 21% right now, right? I mean, it's, uh, he's got a pass-through company. He's showing the profits in the company. He passes it through to himself. He pays a maximum 21%. There's no way I can do that with my paycheck. There's no way well, you can you do that with your with paycheck. tax rate was 25%, which means we were talking about his full taxes. We How can you justify give... lower taxes for rich people than for working people? Well, we want to give the rich people, instead of just having large bank accounts to pass on to their next generation to keep them rich, we want to give them the incentive to invest their money. We want to give them uh, the incentive to continue growing the economy. It's, so why don't we give working incentive. people the incentive to work by letting them keep more of their paycheck? The president... Trump no, the Trump tax, tax scam raised bill. taxes on 10,300,000 Americans. I don't know who you're quoting, but in the New York Times, we have an article that um, says that um, if you have income of less than thirty thousand, you got a tax cut. If you have income of thirty thousand to fifty thousand, you got a tax cut. And if you're uh, the general public, likely got a. So tax you think cut. it's just fine to borrow a trillion and a half dollars? And instead of using that money to pay off all the student loans in the country, instead of using that money to rebuild our roads and bridges that are falling apart, instead of using that money to build schools and hospitals, instead of using that money to provide health care for people who don't have access to it, we give that money to uh, 83% of that money to the top 90% of Americans. You think that's that's fine? That that is the same flawed reasoning that AOC used to keep Amazon out of New York. If you don't want to make money and if you don't want to grow the economy, then by all what, means... What does that we, have to do with borrowing money to give tax breaks to billionaires as opposed to doing anything good for this country? Look, I don't think we should borrow money. I think that we should cut spending. But if we're talking about the tax code and what we're doing to grow through the tax code to grow the economy, we need to continue giving incentives to everybody to spend more money. 
And that is what a tax cut's doing. Then why the, is it that the economies, that, the, that economies, uh, the European economies, where, and Canadian, the Canadian economy, where instead of taxes being about 20% of GDP, you know, the government sector represents somewhere between 40 and 50% of GDP, that they live longer, they are happier, they have better quality of life, and their businesses work better? Well, I think that most of those numbers, just like the last one that you quoted, are all disputable. The numbers don't work out that way. Corporations don't pay taxes. That comes out of uh, consumer pockets. I think this is a longer discussion and bigger numbers. Corporations absolutely pay taxes. Okay, Charles Sauer, libertarian economist and president of the Market Institute. Marketinstitute.org, his book, Profit Motive, What Drives the Things We Do. You can tweet him at Charles Sauer, S-A-U-E-R. Thank you, Charles. Thank you. If you're like me, then safeguarding your money through market downturns is a clear priority. And frankly, we've seen enough market volatility to make any investor nervous. For people like us who think outside the box and read between the lines, it's becoming even more clear that the insider secret of accumulating physical gold is becoming a lot less of a secret and more of a trend. According to the World Gold Council, in 2018 alone, central bank gold purchases increased by over 74%. The bottom line is that we are starting to see the cracks forming in our economy. And the faster you take action, the better your opportunity. There's only one company I personally recommend in this industry, and that's the expert strategists at ITM Trading. They specialize in wealth protection and opportunity positioning. Both, as you know, are imperative in our current economic climate. Call my friends at ITM Trading at one own gold Ask for their free gold protection guide and hedge your bets like the top 1% do. Call one own gold That's one owngold one own gold Dan in uh, Waterloo, Canada. Dan, we have just a half a minute. You got a quick one? I don't know if it's quick, but I wanted your opinion on uh, how taxation is basically the only way to have real capitalism. If you don't have high taxation, you end up with money filtering to the top and basically an incentive for capitalism, the system, to destroy itself and as we see, it's destroying the planet. I think you're absolutely right. And if you look at the United States when the top marginal tax rate was 90%, that was when capitalism was the healthiest. And when you look at countries around the world where the top tax rate is in the neighborhood of 50% or above, you find very, very healthy capitalism and a healthy middle class. When the top tax rate goes below 50%, the middle class starts to evaporate and the people at the top get richer and richer and pretty soon you've got a teetering tower that's just waiting You're to crash. listening to Tom Hartman. We're going to do a Conversations with Great Minds segment here. Professor David W. Blight is with us. He's Professor of American History and Director of the Gilder Lehrman Center for the Study of Slavery, Resistance, and Abolition at Yale University. He's the author or editor of a dozen books. His latest is Frederick Douglass, Prophet of Freedom. His Twitter handle is David W. Blight, B-L-I-G-H-T, and the website is davidwblight.com. Professor Blight, welcome to the program. Thank you, Tom. Good to be with you. And thank you for this brilliant book. Let's kind of start at the beginning. Um, who was Frederick Douglass? Uh, well, he was uh, a slave born in a remote spot on the eastern shore of Maryland in 1818. And he spent 20 years as a slave, about 11 of those years out on the eastern shore of Maryland, and about nine of those years in Baltimore. He escaped from Baltimore 
1838 to New York and then on to New Bedford, Massachusetts. Within a short time, within three years, in fact, he was discovered as a preacher at a local black AME church and then invited onto the abolitionist circuit as an orator. He took that circuit by storm with his own personal stories and his embittered critique of American slavery, which, of course, he had experienced. He then goes on to be one of the greatest orators of American history and one of our great writers. He will write three autobiographies. He'll write hundreds and hundreds of short-form editorials in his anti-slavery newspaper, and then he wrote uh, thousands of speeches, uh, for which he's particularly most famous. He lives all the way to 1895, becomes the uh, principal African-American spokesman of his people. A great literary figure, but also, you know, he stands there kind of across the 19th century as an interpreter and an embodiment of these greatest issues of the 19th century in America. Slavery, its destruction and abolition, the Civil War, Reconstruction. And he lives all the way to the age of uh, the Jim Crow laws and the lynching problem. So the trajectory of this man's life as uh, an orator, a statesman, and a writer is uh, quite remarkable. And it's also an extraordinary lens through which we can watch, we can look at that entire era. Exactly. You know, go ahead. No, well, there's so many issues in Douglas's life. I've been told this by many, many readers in reading about his life and the crises he lived through and his analysis of those crises that they see so much of today's problems in his life and in his ideas, and it's true. For example? We, well, we are still living with the idea every day of what does it mean to be an American? Who is an American? What does it mean to have birthright, birthright citizenship in this country? And what are the legacies of slavery? the legacies of the emancipation of the slaves in the Civil War, and then the legacies of Reconstruction, particularly those great constitutional amendments. And then, of course, uh, what is equality? Uh, we are still, every day, working on that problem of how do you establish equality between people right here on Earth and equality before the law. All of those issues were the heart of Douglass's life and are at the heart of his analysis. He's also, I should say, in terms of his importance, he's a quite amazing man of words and letters. Uh, he became, a, by a whole variety of means, but he became a genius with language, a word master supreme. And uh, he lives on, essentially, in his words, in the autobiographies, the first of which is now widely taught across the country and the world. But also, some of his great speeches, like his Fourth of July speech, among others, uh, he's remembered largely in his language and in his words, uh, which is only appropriate because it was essentially the only weapon he ever had. Following the Civil War, there was... Extraordinary optimism might even be an understatement sure. uh, among the, the freed slaves, enslaved people of the South, 
that, you know, things are going to work now, right? The Northern Army was occupying the South in Georgia and in South Carolina in particular. You saw, you know, significant numbers of African-Americans getting elected to legislatures. The Georgia Constitution was rewritten, as I recall, in what was it, 1864, 65, something like that, in order to get them back into the Union. And there were between a dozen and 20 African-Americans who participated in that process, if I'm remembering correctly. Major stuff. And, you know, how did Douglas respond to this, you know, explosion of optimism? And then how did he respond to, you know, when Andrew Johnson started blowing this stuff up and withdrawing the Union soldiers and letting the South go back to doing what they did? How did he respond to that? And and how did America respond to those two things? And to what extent were they in sync or not? Yeah, well, this is the heart of the story of Reconstruction and the aftermath of the Civil War. It was a time for at least, you know, three to five years of explosions of hope among African-Americans and their many allies uh, in the North, uh, particularly among the Republicans, the radical Republicans, and a lot of people who believed they had fought, bled, and died and lost their sons and husbands, not only to save the Union, but to destroy slavery. And Douglas's response was uh, to share that optimism and that hope. After all, it's worth thinking about here. He's an example of a radical outsider, an abolitionist. You know, abolitionists were radicals always on the outside knocking on the door. They, they never, ever were mainstream. But he lives to experience victory. His cause actually wins and triumphs in the Civil War. Granted, it happened through enormous bloodshed, but in its wake, there was tremendous hope in 1865, 6, 7, 8, even 69, even 70. You have the passage of the three great Civil War amendments, the 13th, the 14th, and the 15th Amendments, the first Civil Rights Act ever passed in America in 1866. Reconstruction in the South is put in place as a means of remaking Southern society, of remaking these Southern state governments, the 11 ex-Confederate states. Don't get back into the Union without ratifying the 14th Amendment, which is equality before law, without giving the right to vote to black men, or at least they were supposed to. It didn't take them very long to start resisting that, of course. I'll answer your question by pointing to a particular speech Douglas gave. He first wrote it in 1867. It's a speech called The Composite Nation. He gives it for about three years, 67 to 1870 or so. And that speech, it's a remarkable speech. He took it on the road, gave it many, many times, which is what he always did. But that speech is this vision of an America that is multi-ethnic, multi-religious, multi-racial, all living somehow, you know, under a regime of equality before law. It's an argument for how the United States, out of this god-awful bloody war, had been given the opportunity, as no nation ever had, to create such a country that would welcome all religions, all ethnicities, all races, and so forth. It's also a vision of an America that would even spread and expand these ideas, because out of that, Douglas actually does become an American expansionist of kind. Now, that speech, if you read it today, it reads almost like 
a framework statement for multiculturalism from the 1990s. Or what was the diversity. date of the speech? He first gave it in 1867, so it's right at the peak of you know the Reconstruction laws, the radical Reconstruction. Right. He keeps giving it for on and off for the next two, three years. So far as I could tell, he never gave it again after 1870 or 71, mm. because it just didn't fit the context anymore. But it's this vision of the possibility that the Civil War had brought. It's incredibly optimistic when you read it. I mean, it reads like a diversity manifesto for our own time. So that is a window into the kind of optimism that the war did bring about, because when he first crafted that speech in 1867, black men had been given the right to vote. Equality before law is in the 14th Amendment. For Civil Rights Act, it was passed, at least giving people some option to pursue discrimination cases in court. It actually looked like the country might just might make good on what emancipation had meant, that is, transforming it. And it turned out, right. ultimately, we didn't. I want to continue the conversation. Sure. We're talking with Professor David W. Blight. He's the author of a dozen books. His latest is Frederick Douglass, Prophet of Freedom. His website, davidwblight.com. You can tweet him at David W. Blight. You know, Louise and I just got back from Mexico, and uh, we took a week's vacation uh, with my brother and his family, but it was also a week that I could finish up writing this, this book on voting that I've been working on. And while we were there, uh, my brother-in-law, or my brother and sister-in-law rented a house that we all shared, and it, it, it had, you know, a, a Wi-Fi that was kind of public Wi-Fi. And, uh, you know, going to town, there's public Wi-Fi. At the airport, there's public Wi-Fi. Pretty much everywhere I was, I didn't know, you know, whether it was secure or not, but I was not concerned because Louise and I both use ExpressVPN. I have it on my iPhone. I have it on my computer. I, she, Louise has it on her laptop. I have it on my laptop. Uh, she has it on her iPad. Uh, ExpressVPN, it's one click. It secures and anonymizes your internet browsing. In fact, when we were in Mexico, uh, if it, you know, it, it would have looked to any website pretty much like we were in the United States because the ExpressVPN... Uh, apparently it was just dropping our data and, you know, encrypted from where we were in Mexico right into the United States, you know, into a main pipeline and uh, completely safe, completely secure. Uh, with Ex ExpressVPN, I can surf any Wi-Fi without worrying about my personal data being stolen. And it's less than seven bucks a month. For less than seven dollars a month, you can get the same protection that Louise and I have and ExpressVPN has been rated the number one VPN service by TechRadar. It comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. You can protect your online activity now and get three months free at expressvpn.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash T-H-O-M for three months free with a one-year package. This is a product. I love endorsing this product. I actually use it. ExpressVPN is something you should have. Visit expressvpn.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M, to learn more. And thanks for supporting our program. <music> Professor Blight, so Frederick Douglass went from this extraordinary optimism with his 1867 speech through the next three or four years. And then what happened? How did he respond to the loss of Reconstruction? Well, it's a slow process. It doesn't happen overnight. He's still very much in agreement with the Republican Party into the 1870s, although he begins to see that they're pulling back on enforcement right. 
of the law of the Reconstruction Acts in the South. He was living in the uh, North at that time. Oh, yes. He's yeah. still living at that point in Rochester, New York. He lives in Rochester, New York till 1872 when his house was burned, probably by arson. Wow. And then he moved his full, his entire extended family to Washington, D.C. So after 1872, he's living in the national capital, which became an interesting, hugely interesting part of his life because he wanted to be at the center. He wanted to get inside of power. He wanted to get inside the circles of the Republican Party if he could. Now, he does become embittered to a degree uh, through the course of the 1870s. You can see this in his writings. You can see this in certain speeches. And he issues all kinds of warnings about how much the federal government and therefore the Republican Party is pulling back from what they had indeed created. And though he will be disappointed with the kinds of compromises Republicans are making, after the Grant years, he was more than willing to accept a federal appointment from Rutherford B. Hayes, who gets elected in that disputed election in 1876. And he'll get two appointments, one out of Hayes, one out of Garfield, inside the federal government. One was Marshal of the District of Columbia, and one was as a recorder of deeds in the District of Columbia. Now, those may not seem like high offices, but they were important. And they were very symbolically important that an African-American would be appointed to that. And it brought him a salary because he had never made a dime in his life any other way. But with his voice and his pen, wow. you know, with his newspaper and his oratory from 1841 to 1877, I always say to my students, you know, being an abolitionist, was not upwardly mobile. Right. Not, not a good career move. Yeah. Then even later, he will be appointed the U.S. Minister to Haiti, which means ambassador to Haiti. Uh, that comes much later, 1889, under President Harrison. Mm. He spent two years in a very difficult, turbulent mission of trying to enforce America's expansionist policies in the Caribbean. Uh, he got himself into quite of a mess with that, and he ended up resigning by 1891. But what Douglas becomes here in that period is the old radical outsider who now becomes, to some degree, a political insider. And I find it one of the most fascinating things about his life. You were talking about Frederick Douglass's after the failure of Reconstruction, he moved to Washington, D.C. He was kind of an insider. He was the ambassador to Haiti, essentially, mm -hmm. and then was embittered by that. I want to continue down that road and get your thoughts on the last part of his life. I'm curious, though, he gave a speech about the 4th of July and what it means. When was right. that in this whole arc, and how does that speech speak to today? Wow. Okay. Great question. He gave it in 1852, so it's back earlier in his life. It's after he had moved out to Rochester, New York. He gave the speech in Rochester in a hall with about 600 people. It's the masterpiece of oratory of his life and the rhetorical masterpiece of American abolitionism. It's a speech in which he effectively says, why have you invited me here on the 4th of July? Why me speaking on your Independence Day? He turns this opportunity into a fierce critique of American hypocrisy. Here he is, a former slave, a former fugitive slave in a country that is still with a huge slave 
you know, growing slave population in an intense political crisis evolving over the expansion of slavery. And he took his audience through what amounts to a kind of symphony in three movements. He opens the speech by saying, honor your founding fathers, honor them indeed. They were geniuses. They created this Declaration of Independence with those great principles. And he sets them up, though, for the whole middle of the speech, where he says, but you here you are violating those principles. And he takes them through a litany of all the evils of everything from the slave ships and the slave trade to the domestic slave trade in the U.S. to auction blocks and worse. But then at the end, he sort of lets his audience back up. He says, yes, you are hypocrites. But there's still time. Your country is malleable. Your creeds are fine. It's your practices and your behavior that are not fine, but you still have some chance. It's a classic Jeremiah in the old Puritan sense. It's a very biblical speech, which was so typical of Douglas. He rips the heart out of his audience by saying, you are hopeless hypocrites, just like Jeremiah did, or Isaiah, or Ezekiel, and the old Hebrew prophets. But then he still turns it into a kind of a vision of hope, if they can learn, if they can change, if the country can find some way of destroying slavery. It's a speech that shows his genius with language and with this form Right. of oratory and, and the reason Jeremiah. And right. it's used today all over the country on the 4th of July. There are many towns that do public readings of it now right. because it is a way of reminding ourselves that our project here, this experiment called the American Republic, is always unfinished. We've mm-hmm. always got work to do to make right. it work. Professor Blight, what would Douglas's message for today be, do you believe? Oh, his message would be to protest, resist, learn, read, write, fight, agitate, as he so often said, agitate. The message of his life at the time. Exactly. And join social movements, gather together, and uphold the natural rights tradition and the American creeds of the first principles of the Declaration. It was an extraordinary man in an extraordinary time. Professor David W. Blight, Professor of American History and Director of the Gilder Lerman Center for the Study of Slavery, Resistance, and Abolition at Yale University, author Frederick Douglass, Prophet of Freedom. Dr. Blight, thanks so much for dropping by today. Thank you for having me, Tom. It's been my pleasure, and it's a fabulous book, absolutely fabulous book. Thank you. We'll be back with more of the program and our ongoing conversations about what's going on in our political sphere, what's going on and everything else. This is the Tom Hartman Program. For our book club today, we're reading from David Blight's book, Frederick Douglass, Prophet of Freedom. This is from the introduction. In his speech at the dedication of the National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, D.C., September 24, 2016, President Barack Obama delivered what he termed a, quote, clear-eyed view of a tragic and triumphant history of black Americans in the United States. He spoke of a history that is central to the larger American story, one that is both contradictory and extraordinary. He likened the African-American experience to the infinite depths of Shakespeare and scripture. 
The, quote, embrace of truth as best we can know it, said the president, is, quote, where real patriotism lies. Naming some of the major pivots of the country's past, Obama wrapped up his central theme in a remarkable sentence about the Civil War era. Quote, we've buttoned up our Union blues to join the fight for our freedom. We've railed against injustice for decade upon decade, a lifetime of struggle and progress and enlightenment that we see etched in Frederick Douglass's mighty leonine gaze. End quote. How Americans react to Douglass's gaze, indeed how we gaze back at his visage, and more important, how we read him, appropriate him, or engage his legacies, informs how we use our past to determine who we are. Douglass's life and writing emerged from nearly the full scope of the 19th century, representative of the best and the worst in the American spirit. Douglass constantly probed the ironies of America's contradictions over slavery and race. Few Americans use Shakespeare and the Bible to comprehend his story and that of his people as much as Douglass. And there may be no better example of an American radical patriot than the slave who became a lyrical prophet of freedom, natural rights, and human equality. Obama channeled Douglass in his dedication speech, knowingly or not, so do many people today. Born Frederick Augustus Washington Bailey, a slave, in Talbot County, Maryland, in February 1818, the future Frederick Douglass was the son of Harriet Bailey, one of five daughters of Betsy Bailey, and with some likelihood his mother's white owner. He saw his mother for the last time in 1825, though he hardly knew her. She died the following year. Douglass lived 20 years as a slave and nearly nine years as a fugitive slave subject to recapture. From the 1840s to his death in 1895, he attained international fame as an abolitionist, editor, orator of almost unparalleled signature, and the author of three autobiographies that are classics of the genre. As a public man, he began his abolitionist career two decades before America would divide and fight a civil war over slavery that he openly welcomed. Douglas was born in a backwater of the slave society of the South, just as steamboats appeared in bays and on American rivers, and before the telegraph, the railroad, and the rotary press changed human mobility and consciousness. He died after the emergence of electric lights, the telephone, and the invention of the phonograph. The renewed orator and traveler loved and used most of these elements of modernity and technology. Douglas was the most photographed American of the 19th century, explained in this book and especially by the intrepid research of three other scholars I write upon. Although it can never really be measured, he may also have been, along with Mark Twain, the most widely traveled American public figure of his century. By the 1890s, in sheer miles and countless number of speeches, he had few rivals as a lecturer in the golden age of oratory. It is likely that more Americans heard Frederick Douglass speak than any other public figure of his time. Indeed, to see or hear Douglass became a kind of wonder of the American world. He struggled as well with the pleasures and perils of fame as much as anyone else in his century, with the possible exceptions of General Ulysses S. Grant or P.T. Barnum. Douglass's dilemma with fame was a matter of decades, not merely of moments, and fraught with racism. The orator and writer lived to see and interpret black emancipation, to work actively for women's rights long before they were achieved, to realize the civil rights triumphs and tragedies of Reconstruction, and to witness and contribute to America's economic and international expansion in the Gilded Age. He lived to the age of lynching and Jim Crow laws, when America collapsed into retreat from the real victories and revolutions in race relations that he had helped to win. He played a pivotal role in America's second founding out of the apocalypse of the Civil War, and he very much wished to see himself as a founder and defender 
of the Second American Republic. In one lifetime of anti-slavery, literary, and political activism, Douglas was many things, and the set of apparent paradoxes makes his story so attractive to, to biographers, as well as to so many constituencies today. He was a radical thinker and a proponent of classic 19th century political liberalism. At different times, he hated and loved his country. He was a ferocious critic of the United States and all its hypocrisies, but also, after emancipation, became a government bureaucrat, a diplomat, and a voice for territorial expansion. He strongly believed in self-reliance and demanded an activist interventionist government at all levels to free slaves, defeat the Confederacy, and to protect black citizens against terror and discrimination. Douglas was a serious constitutional thinker, and few Americans have ever analyzed race with more poignancy and nuance than this mostly self-taught genius with words. He was a radical editor, writer, and activist. The book, Frederick Douglass by David Blight. Hey, thanks so much for listening to our podcast. One of our sponsors is the X Chair. And I got to tell you, they've got this new thing, Dynamic Variable Lumbar Support. They're called DVL. The X Chair's DVL is really designed to adjust for you. I mean, you know, the average chair, maybe it goes up and down, right? This thing really is totally customizable. Whether you're 5'2 and 110 pounds or 6'4 and 250, the X Chair actually will adapt itself to you. And now with the introduction of the X Basic model, there's an X chair for every body type and every budget. Take advantage of the X chair's new financing option to pay as little as 30 bucks a month to so take your comfort and productivity to the next level for less than the cost of a daily cup of coffee. And X chair is also on sale now for $100 off. So just go to X chair Tom, T H O M, X chair Tom.com, X chair Tom, or call 1 844 4X chair. Comes with a 30 day no questions asked guarantee of complete satisfaction. And if you use the code XWheels over at XChairTom.com now, you'll also receive a free set of the new XWheels with your chair. That's XChairTom, T-H-O-M, XChairTom.com. This is by Isaac Stanley Becker in the Washington Post. The headline kind of summarizes it. Whites are mainly to blame for air pollution, but blacks and Hispanics bear the burden, says a new study. This is a study that came out of the National Academy of Sciences of the United States of America, right? An official study. And what they found is that, first of all, that air pollution is responsible for more deaths globally every year than car accidents, number one. And number two, that, you know, a statistical analysis found that while white people, largely through consuming more stuff because white people are wealthier and the production of that stuff produces air pollution, white people, largely because of this consumption, are producing more air pollution and people of color, particularly blacks and Hispanics, are receiving more of it, exposed to it. In fact, the percentage is that white people get 17% less air pollution than is generated by their consumption. So, you know, if as a white person I am buying products and I'm buying more products than the average black person because, or family, let's say my family, their family, because we have more money, because that's just how American society has gotten organized over the last 400 years, and we still have that legacy, and this is one of the reasons why we need a conversation about reparations, but that's a whole other thing. But in any case, if... If as a white person I'm buying this stuff, where's the stuff made? Where's the electricity generated? Where is the coal ash being stored? 
you know, the poisonous byproducts of the production of electricity through oil or coal, for example. Where is the manufacturing being done? You know, who's living alongside the highways and heavily traveled roadways where there's lots and lots of car exhaust? It's going to be mostly poor people and people of color. And so the bottom line is that a white person receives 17% less pollution than should be if they were exposed to all the pollution that was caused by their consumption. Whereas blacks receive 56% more pollution than would be represented by their consumption, and Hispanics receive 63% more exposure to pollution than would be considered for their consumption. And then they go on to add this from the National Academy of Sciences study, black Americans were more exposed than whites to every type of emission from road dust to construction. The same held true for Hispanics. And so, you know, here we are. We've got not only white nationalism and, you know, guys shooting up and killing people in the name of the white race, but we still have a situation in the United States where white people don't even suffer the pollution consequences of their own levels of consumption because we've managed to physically segregate our society in ways that the high pollution zones are also the poor areas, which in most cases means areas where there's lots of people of color living. It's amazing. Jake in Las Vegas, Nevada. Hey, Jake, what's on your mind today? I'm wondering, what is your opinion if the political climate of the 1850s was prevalent in the 1770s, 1780s. Do you think that some of the wealthy slaveholding founding fathers would have voted to secede? To secede from the UK in 1770 or from the Republic well, in 1850? No, just have another country instead of with the United States. They would be, yeah. if there was somebody very strongly opposed to uh, slavery and the there was, Jake. More than half of the people who were at the Constitutional Convention were not only not slaveholders, but were actively, well, probably a quarter of them were actively and aggressively working to end slavery. Slavery was a hugely divisive issue in the 1770s in the United States. There were some pockets of slavery in some of the northern states, but by and large, it was outlawed in Massachusetts. It was outlawed in Pennsylvania. Ben Franklin was a foe of it. John Adams' son, John Quincy Adams, he became president in 1820, whatever it was. And then after he left the White House, Congress passed a law saying that the issue of slavery could not be discussed in the House of Representatives. John Quincy Adams ran for election to the House of Representatives after already being president and won, by the way, specifically so that literally every day he could illegally bring up the topic of slavery in the House. He got into a whole bunch of fights around this stuff. There was not unanimity at the founding of this republic about slavery. It was hugely contentious. So I don't get your argument. Well, it's not an argument. I just want to get your opinion. Had the people like John Adams Sr. Who opposed slavery, openly and actively opposed slavery, John Adams did. Yeah, I know. But had they insisted that the whole country free the slaves, do you think Washington, who all his wealth came from slavery, Jefferson, who was coddled from birth to his death by slaves, and Patrick Henry... Who was the largest slaveholder in Virginia. I think, you know, this was one of the big debates in Philadelphia in 1787, and frankly before that as well. And what they did was they compromised. They felt it was more important to have one republic, one nation, 
even if it meant that half that nation was slave and half that nation was free. And so, you know, they wrote into the Constitution that after 1808, there could be no more slave trade. Now, you know, some of the people thought that meant the slavery was going to end. Others thought that that meant that, you know, it would become more profitable to be, quote, breeding slaves in the South. There was a lot of cynical horse trading going on, and there was some noble sentiments. But they had what they had, and they worked with it the way they worked with it. I, you know, it's, I don't think you can justify it, but it was not something where everybody was of one mind on that issue at all. And that issue continued to divide America for the next 70 years until it reached the point where we had a civil war over that issue. Today in our book club, we're reading from Reconstructing the Gospel, Finding Freedom from Slaveholder Religion by Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove with a foreword by the Reverend William Barber II. This is from page 61. The chapter is Living in Skin and the subtitle is American Slavery and the Problem of Bodies. America's original sin of race-based slavery is rooted in our bodies. While most of us will do what we can to save our own skin, our bodies bear the curse of human rebellion, sweat of the brow, and the pains of labor. The sins of our fathers and mothers bear down on bent backs and sciatic nerves. Slavery has always been one means humans employ to skirt this curse. To the victor belong the spoils is an ancient truism of war. Often in human history, the spoils include people. But war is not the only way some bodies become subject to others. In the opening lines of the Exodus story, the Bible says, quote, a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt, end quote. In the messiness of politics, favor comes and goes. But the people who are in power almost always make sure someone else carries the weight and does the dirty work. The unique contribution of slavery during the establishment of the American colonies was the employment of skin color to assign a class of people to perpetual servitude. Originally, white and black people came to the colonies as servants of the settler class, but race-based slavery emerged as an efficient means of building up the plantation economy by permanently assigning people of African descent to the status of slave. Africans who survived the long journey across the Atlantic Ocean, often chained to one another and packed prostrate in the hold of a ship, became human chattel in the New World. In explicit contrast to the enslavable black flesh of Africans, people of European descent, began to imagine themselves as white. By virtue of their whiteness, and for no other reason, they imagined a divine right to own black bodies. For the people whose saleable skin rendered them subject to use and abuse, this arrangement was obviously anathema. Quote, and before I'd be a slave, I'd be buried in my grave and go home to my Lord and be free, end quote, they sang when white folks weren't listening. Tactics of resistance varied, but people of African descent always knew in their bodies the basic heresy of race-based slavery. And in their bodies, white people knew it too. To comprehend the moral contradiction of America's original sin, you must consider what it meant for a young white man to come of age on a plantation. Imagine yourself growing up amid a pastoral landscape in the early 19th century, a half day's horse ride from the closest city. As for any child, your world is the people you've known and the places familiar to you since birth the big house which you've always called home, and the barn where your daddy tied a rope swing from the rafters so you could fly down from the loft and land safely in that mound of hay by the horse stalls. For as long as you can remember, you've always had your studies and your chores to do. Mother always insisted that you learn responsibility, but you always felt closer to Betsy, the enslaved black woman who changed your diapers and cooked your food and 
picked you up when you fell and skinned your knees. You never remember running down to the barn to play without Betsy's two boys and Imogen, the girl between them, the one that was born just three months after you. For you, a son of so-called privilege, puberty means beginning to make sense of why you kissed Imogen down in the hay pile when you were six and why you both always knew you could never tell a soul. It means coming to terms with the fact that you and Imogen both share your father's nose, and it means beginning to internalize an arrangement in which you will one day inherit as property the woman who both competed with your mother for your father's love and nursed you at her breast. If you were a good Episcopalian, as most plantation families were, this is also about the time you would be confirmed as a living member of the body of Jesus Christ. The Southern writer Lillian Smith wrote a century after slavery's end, now at one's feet there are chasms that had been invisible until this moment. Describing an experience shared in silence by generations of white Christians, she observed how, quote, one knows and never remembers how it was learned, that there will always be chasms, and now across the chasms will always be those one loves, end quote. To observe that race-based chattel slavery was a gut-wrenching experience that white people also experienced in their bodies is not in any way to equate their suffering with that of African Americans. It is instead to try to understand the lived experience that informs the ways they read the Bible and imagined their world. Because even though slavery ended in 1865 in the United States, most white Christians went on reading the Bible and seeing the world around them exactly as they had before. Growing up Southern Baptist in North Carolina, I memorized scripture in the King James Version and engaged in a serious program of discipleship as a white adolescent without ever giving serious consideration to the Southern in our denomination's name. Then in 1995, the summer before my freshman year of high school, the Southern Baptist Convention issued an official apology for its endorsement of slavery. There it was. We'd separated ourselves from our American Baptist sisters and brothers some 150 years earlier in order to stay Southern and keep our slaves. Enough water had passed under the bridge for our elders to decide it was time to bury the hatchet. They said they were sorry. But their concession stirred up old fears. Before I'd finished high school, a conservative movement within the denomination insisted we had become too liberal, took over the denomination, and forced everyone who worked for the International Mission Board to sign a statement of faith to which they added an article about female submission. It was the first time in my life I'd seen people on the local evening news being interviewed about my church. The book, Reconstructing the Gospel. In our newest members-only video, we examine a whole bunch of stuff that has to do with living long and living healthy. There are these things called blue zones, five places in the world where people live routinely into their 90s and 100s, long, long live people. And the researcher who put this thing together discovered that one of those five places in the world where people live so long is right here in the United States, a little town of Loma Linda. I'll tell you in the clip. There's links to it and information about it in our newsletter, which is free. You can sign up at TomHartman.com and, of course, on our website at TomHartman.com and Patreon.com slash TomHartman. So uh, an awful lot on the table here. Let me just toss one more thing in front of us all. The ACLU of Kansas is asking for a state investigation of the police in this little town of Tonganoxi. It's about 30 miles west of Kansas City. A fellow by the name of Carl Robinson bought a house in Tonganoxi, and he was moving into his house when the Tonganoxi police pulled up pulled guns on him, 
and said, what are you doing? This guy was moving into his house. Oh, did I point out he was black? Surprise, surprise, as uh, Gomer used to say. Pat in Washington, D.C. Hey, Pat, thanks for listening to SiriusXM. What's on your mind today? Well, I wanted to disagree with you about something you said. Okay. About why the police keep shooting down men of color. And you said it was because of fear. Well, I was hitting a break there. You know, obviously it's racism that's driving that fear. It's this perception of an other that is different than oneself. And all the layers of essentially, you know, evil memes that have been laid on that other over the years. But I was running out of time. I'm sorry, Pat, if I wasn't. But feel free to go after what I just said. Well, it just, it just you know, that whole thing about fear, that sort of feeds into this police reasoning behind why they kill people. And I just think, sure. first of all, how do you pull over, get out of your car and walk up to a car with your gun drawn and then open fire on a man just because you see a gun in his lap? How are you afraid? How do you claim fear for that? Or how do you claim fear for, for somebody running away from you? Yeah. And you shooting them down in the back. So just to say that this fear sort of feeds into this police excuse about why they're just opening fire on black men. And the answer, frankly, it needs to be, you know, nationwide police reform. Yes. Police conduct nationwide. There ought to be a reasonable, articulable reason for fear, for somebody saying it's fear and it should be, you know, clearly identified. You know, let's just start somewhere. But, you know, a police goes up and mows a man down or, or a guy's running away and they say, I was afraid. That's just crazy. And that is the freaking law. That's what's so unbelievable about it. Yeah, I absolutely That's agree. How so many of them get away. I absolutely agree. And I think at its core, it is 100 percent racism. And only occasionally, arguably, is it fear. You know, I think that, you know, the guy who killed Trayvon Martin was motivated purely by hatred, racial hatred. Absolutely. You know, and of course, the list goes on and on and on. And, and occasionally you'll get a cop, the cops who killed Tamir Rice. Oh, we thought he had a gun. Uh, you know, still, you wouldn't have done that if it had been a 10 year old white kid. You know, it's just no. let, let's just be clear about this. So, yes. And I would add, if I can, I, not only do we need nationwide police reform, that includes some really dramatic changes in how we hold police officers accountable in officer-involved shootings and how the police unions, the power that the police unions have in that regard needs to be, in my opinion, somewhat dialed back. But also, we've got a problem in our schools. You know, uh, black kids are literally treated differently in our schools. They're more likely to be disciplined. They're more likely to be expelled, you know, et cetera. Beyond, beyond the problems that might be associated with regional poverty or things like that. I mean, this is just, this is a racial thing too. And it's not just our schools. I mean, at, at so many different levels in our society, so we have, many. I'm sorry, go ahead. You know, no, you're right. So many, you're absolutely right. From the cradle to the grave is real. Yes, yes. And from employment to uh, getting loans to educational opportunities, there was a piece in one of the science magazines I was reading a couple of days ago that said that they just did a survey and they found that they sent letters to professors asking for mentorships, professors who were willing to mentor students. And what they found was that when they signed identical letters, right, this was just an experiment, identical letters, they signed them with a name that implied that the student was white versus a name that implied that the student was black. There was almost a two to one acceptance rate of the white kids versus the black kids. 
it's like baked into the cake of our society and it's a cancer and we've got to extract it we've got to extract it and talking about it like you and i are right now pat i think is a piece of that although we need actual particularly with regard to the police and i would say also with regard to our schools we need actual policy changes as well pat thanks so much for the call We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 